at my direction, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is issuing guidance for communities of faith. Today, I'm identifying houses of worship, churches, synagogues, and mosques as essential places that provide essential services. Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. I it's a, will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more questions. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Progressive Southern Theologians podcast, a show where two progressive theologians working in the South gather and discuss matters of faith, politics, and other social issues. I'm Mark Boswell, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Jamie McLeod. We're both glad to be back with you again this week. Jamie, how are things for you today? Mark, I am essential. <laughs> Isn't it good to know the president has declared you and your work and congregation to be essential? That's a great thing. I called my mom and everything after that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, today, dear listeners, we are taking up just that issue as we turn towards President Donald Trump's recent announcement that he's declared houses of worship to be essential and exempt from lockdowns. In our second segment, Jamie and I will turn our attention to the lens through which everything in America is viewed, that being race. We'll discuss former Vice President Joe Biden's recent controversial comments on the morning radio show The Breakfast Club when he was being interviewed by rapper and host Charlemagne the God. We also want to say that at the time of this recording, news is just beginning to break of an African-American man in Minneapolis who died in police custody following what video footage shows to be a particularly disturbing arrest. We also give some brief thoughts on this based on what we know at the moment at the end of our second segment. And lastly, we'll wind down our show, as always, with the segment we call our Front Porch Musings, where we muse about and discuss something from the week that we have found interesting or that's bringing us joy. Before we begin today, we'd like to ask that if you enjoy this podcast, to do two things to help us out. First, please subscribe to the show in your podcast app of choice. And second, please give it a five-star ranking. Doing these two simple things help others to find our work, and we certainly do appreciate that. And if you want to read more of our written work, please visit our website, ProgressiveSouthernTheologians.com, and also check us out on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you all for being with us this week. Jamie, on May 22nd, going into Memorial Day weekend, Donald Trump gave a briefing to the White House Press Corps announcing that he was deeming all houses of worship, churches, mosques, and synagogues, and others to be essential, as in an essential business, so to speak, and that he was using federal authority to override any state governor's orders for churches to remain closed. Trump would not take questions, deferring instead to his press secretary, who went on the attack against members of the press who questioned Trump's ability to use federal power to reverse decisions made at the state level on this particular matter. The press secretary never answered where Trump derived the authority for such matters or if he had it, and instead argued with reporters, asking them why they were so determined to see houses of worship remain closed. We know, Jamie, since the beginning of COVID, there has been a considerable movement of people on the far right who have politicized the shelter-in-place mandates as a type of government overreach, despite the death toll reaching over 100,000 American citizens, with millions more sick from the virus just in our country alone. Jamie, as you say, this train is never late, and here it is showing up right on time. So let's start with a bit of low-hanging fruit first. 
Uh, Trump argued in his uh, in his in his statement, uh, he argued that if some states are declaring liquor stores to be essential, then that means that houses of worship should be, too. <laughs> we could zoom out in a minute and look at the broader context. But let's start with that comment. Um, one of these things does not seem to be like the other. Uh, what what say you? Yeah, wow. <laughs> I'm glad that I am uh, in, in the president's mind thought about in the same category as, say, the local liquor store. Yeah, you know, <laughs> well, well, let's go ahead and get some things. There are about 15 different directions that we can we can take this. And, and really, I told you a couple of days ago that I could go for an hour on this alone. Uh, oh, yeah. But let, let's start off with the, the, the larger question, right? The president has, in fact, zero authority to declare a house of worship to do anything, right? There is mm-hmm. the fact that there is a freedom of religion clause within the First Amendment is paramount here, right? He cannot, in fact, tell me to open anything, and 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 I wouldn't even if even if he did. The other piece to this. Uh, and we can sort of explore what this means as well, is that a friend of mine put this news story on Facebook a few days ago. And my initial reaction to him was, this is some two Corinthians in front of Liberty University level pandering. And, <laughs> Say and more. I agree with you. Yeah. And it doesn't make any sense to me. He He's trying to reach out to those evangelicals who I think he's worried about losing to Joe Biden for reasons that, that escape my mind at least. But he's concerned that I guess either they're going to vote for the other guy or they're just going to stay at home. And so he is trying to remind them that he is pro them, whatever that is. Um, and so and the way that you know this is because even on the Sunday after he deemed this to be an essential business, for lack of a better word, he was essentially on the golf course. And so it clearly was not all that important to him and his personal faith. Uh, but he was he was very happy to put other folks in harm's way in order to, like I said, pander to a group that he's not going to lose no matter what he does. Yeah, I'm reminded of a comment, uh, a, a conversation, actually, that I had over Christmas with a uh, family member. And as we were I was trying not to ruin Christmas dinner with political speech, but um this family member kept going on and on about how good of a man Donald Trump is. And I said, um. I said, Let, yeah, let's, uh, I want to unpack that a little bit. <laughs> and uh, I said, do you, do you really think he's a good Christian man? And I just asked innocently, almost playing dumb. I don't see this per I hardly, I don't know this family member that well at all. We don't see each other that often. And uh, she said, now granted she's in her late eighties, early nineties, and she's a fundamentalist Baptist Christian. And I said, do you really think he's a good Christian man? And she paused for a minute and she said, well, Maybe not a good Christian man, but he has done more for churches and for Christianity in this country than any other president has done in a long time. And it's on that level, I think you're exactly right, that this is that kind of overt pandering to someone like my aunt, who has no business being in church or this family member. Uh, it's a great aunt. I've already outed that much of it, not that she'll ever hear. Uh, she should not be in a congregation. I have no idea what her congregation is choosing to do. Uh, but yeah, it's that kind of uh, virtue signaling. And what's funny to me too, is that 
I don't, I don't have my thumb on the pulse of what all evangelical churches in North Carolina were doing where I grew up, but I do know that my parents' church, which is their pastor is pretty fundamentalist. I do know that he did not have, uh, they continued to have outdoor worship where people were gathered in their cars, you know, so they didn't like go rushing back into the sanctuary. So I can't even help but wonder what actual effect this had on even Trump's base. Like, were they all flooding back into churches and having worship with no masks on? Like, I don't know. Um, it, it just if this was just another blip for people to cons- a media spectacle to be consumed to say, oh yeah, the president loves Christianity. He might not be a good Christian, but he loves Christianity and he has our back. Um, which is its own frustrating thing that could be talked about at length too. But I'm with you on the idea that this was just um, some pandering on his, not just, but it is pandering on his part. I don't want to minimize it. I don't want to minimize it because of the danger that this sends out, you know, and welcomes and invites for people to start rushing back, uh, back into churches. Well, right. Yeah. This is, this is the crazy part to me about this whole thing. Cause I had the exact same thought. Was it yesterday? Late, late Sunday night, early Monday morning. I don't remember when the, the president tweeted out that schools should open immediately. Oh, <laughs> right. I didn't, I missed that. Okay. Right. So, 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 so yeah, right. So, so two things sort of came to mind when, when my wife and I were talking about that yesterday morning, like one, it's summer (laughs) and it may not be summer for everywhere, everybody, but, but it certainly was summer where we were. And really it's gotta be within a two week window of being summer everywhere. So there is in fact, zero chance that there is a, there's a school in America who having, closed down and gone to create an online sort of environment for to for to educate the children is going to reverse all that for a two week window to take the yeah. chance of of spreading a virus to their students so i but it's it to me is in the exact same category right the president says something and nobody does anything right so so the same way that no school in america said oh well the president said we should reopen so let's do that tomorrow nobody, no house of worship that I'm aware of said, well, the president said it is safe to worship now. So I know that we were planning on doing parking lot worship or online worship or recorded worship, but because the president says that it is safe to do so now, we are going to be in the pews on Sunday morning. Nobody that I know said that. And so that leaves me to believe that nothing, at least in this circumstance, nothing that the president says carries any weight whatsoever. And that to me is a monumental statement in this day and age that we're in, that the president makes so much noise that folks don't even try to sort of separate the the gold from the the, the, the dross, right? They just throw it all out now. And I think that says something incredibly profound about where we are as a nation and as as a governmental system. Yeah. And I think Jamie, even amongst his own base, that this is, I think that characterizes much of his presidency and his run up to the presidency in that those who most ardently support him are willing to just conveniently ignore half of the crazy stuff that he says, because what they really want in him and what they've gotten out of him is somebody to stick it to the other side. You know, it's just this, we, we have this disdain for the liberal, the other, the whatever, you know, insert category at that point. 
And we don't much care that he's a charlatan. It's not that important to us. We know who he is. I still say evangelicals always knew what they were getting when they elected, when they decided to sign on board with him. Um, and so I, it, 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 it is not bewildering to me, like you said, that folks would would just say, oh, well, that's just something else that he said, and we're still going to be safe because our, our health is on the line. So we would rather do that than get on board with him. But yet probably still support him at the end of the day because it's not what they were turning to him for in the first place. Yeah, but again, to me that says something incredibly the, – the president of the United States – says things that are nonsense. And we don't care they're nonsense. We're okay with him essentially playing a caricature of a president and saying the things that we really want to hear, even though they're not going to impact our lives in any fashion. And we know a lot of them aren't true to begin with, but we just like the way they sound. Like, What does that mean for, for a community of people to feel much more much more comforted in the words of a president, even though they generally agree that they're largely nonsensical, um, provided that they, they make them sound, they make them feel okay. They make, they sound good to them. What does that say about the, the situation of a community like that, that they can be moved in such a manner? And yeah, like that's not my world. I don't really, I don't really dwell in the evangelical world, but I do know voting blocks. And to me, that says as much about the state of our electorate as anything, that there is this not insignificant portion of the population who are going to be with you ride or die because you say things that make them feel better, even if the reality hasn't changed largely. Yeah, and I'm going to risk speaking in generalizations here, but I still can't help but think that this has a lot to do with 30 years of Fox News and talk radio going back even farther than 30 years if we want to get on that on that train. Just ramping up this sense of victimization and culture war and everything else to make them like my 90 year old great aunt that I mentioned earlier feel as though her country is under attack by liberals, by Democrats, by people of color, by insert group, you know, uh, atheists and secularists and feminists and anything that Rush Limbaugh would say that that has, that has been a finely tuned machine that's been running pretty well for decades now. And I, is that the singular answer? No, I don't know. No larger social dilemma is ever, never, ever has a singular answer, but I do think that's a significant part of it. And that's something we've talked about before on many of our episodes, but I, I do think that has to be something going on here to where they say we're just some sense of anguish and defeat that a, a nihilism that's obviously there, um, a nihilism clouded in Christianity, which is an, an odd thing to say and to think about for another time. But I, that has to be something there. They, Yeah, yeah, anyway. So, Jamie, to shift out of the evangelical world for a moment, um, not entirely necessarily, but what have you seen from pastor friends and uh, lay leadership and others on social media in response to this? Uh, I know we've said that it seems like no one is like really rushed out to immediately um, open their churches, even though the president has advocated for such a thing. 
or their houses of worship. But what are you seeing back? Like, what, how are leaders responding to this? What have you seen? What are you hearing? Yeah, you know, there is a part of me. Let, let's be clear. This largely is terrible. Like, it is. It's it's hard, and it's uh, it is way more stressful, sort of week to week, to try and hold together a community that largely hasn't been in the same space in over two months now. Uh, and and like I said, it's 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 way more stressful to sort of create worship experiences for folks who aren't in the same room. Like that that is that's a tough needle to thread. Um, that being said, I, I have been constantly amazed at the the creativity and the compassion that has arisen out of a great many of my brothers and sisters in in the cloth. Um, I've seen, I've seen folks, I have a pastor friend who gets up and has gotten up every morning without fail during this time and had a Facebook live session where she riffs on some spiritual issue that has been going on in her personal life uh, for probably 10 or 15 minutes. And, you know, she still has her glasses on. She has bed head and she just, <laughs> I, I loved that she has given her parishioners and really anybody that, that, that tunes in just that sort of uh, an intimate glimpse into her sort of inner workings, both as a pastor, but also just as a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, I've got a friend who has delineated every single day as as something so meditation monday and theology thursday and uh, freaky friday or something right (laughs) Uh, but she uh, again she produces uh video content for every day of the week that to me would be exhausting but i am incredibly impressed with sort of just like i said the creativity that has emerged during this time um and the again the compassion, because it did not take. I mean, you know, I'm 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 a Presbyterian. I'm in the PCUSA, and it didn't take the stated clerk of the PCUSA more than about 20 minutes to after the president spoke to release an incredibly heartfelt and compassionate statement around keeping our congregations safe, and that there, this was not a time for for trying to reopen. This was not a time for being in person with one another. This was a time for remaining safe. And to me, that is, that's exactly what the sorts of statements that need to be said in the midst of all of this and continue to be said. Um, I, I think that there is a real opportunity, and I've said this probably in four or five sermons in a row now, but there there's a real opportunity for the church, the capital C church to emerge out of this time um, with a whole set of new skills and talents and infrastructure built up that can lead it to a new sort of place. And, and so as much as all this has been awful and hard and stressful and stress inducing and, and worrisome and scary, there is a degree to which the spirit 
to my mind, still moves and is doing a new thing and is preparing the church to go into a new chapter of its existence. And that to be a part of that is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, that, that, that is wonderful. And I agree with that. I've seen similar types of things on, on my social media feeds as well, and have been greatly encouraged by leadership within the church, capital C across denominational lines, um, and in Jewish traditions and Muslim traditions as well, from some folks that I know across Louisiana, people saying, again, it, it doesn't matter what's being said in D.C., we value the safety of our parishioners. We're going to continue to do what's safe. Um, it's not an easy decision to make, and they do them in uh, conversation with leadership in their congregations and places of worship. Um, and there's I, what I've seen, I'm sure there are examples that would go counter to what I'm about to say, but I've seen and heard more pastors um, heap praise upon their parishioners or, or at least their lay leaders in the, within, the, within that uh, body of worship who have tended to fall more on the side of grace and safety rather than not. And so it's just a comforting thing to think about for me when I, to be reminded that there are leaders, both uh, pastors, rabbis and moms, and then lay leaders as well who say, you know, all right, what really matters here is the health and safety of individuals and our broader communities, even outside of our houses of worship, you know, that we understand that what we do when we gather in worship has spillover effect, you know, beyond the walls and the act of what we do. If, if we were to be physically gathered together, that also means the gas station attendant or the grocery store worker, if we were to carry, you know, the, the virus back out to someone unintentionally. So just taking all of this stuff seriously is great. It's also been interesting to me on a different note to see that um, other denominations that have more of an Episcopal structure to them built in, like the United Methodist Church or other uh, organizations, um, they, they've already had things planned out and mapped out through the end of May, through June, through July, you know, and staged out in terms of state, you know, how they'll reopen in light of various stages or phases that individual states take to reopen. Um, and so just the level of organization there and the sense of like, nah, yeah, we're good. Like we've got a plan. <laughs> we know what we're doing here. We're going to ignore the, the blustering that's coming from a tr- uh, Trump press conference and keep going. Um, not out of just like, partisan defiance but just out of a sense of careful thought and careful study and much deliberation and collaboration um, from denominational leadership and congregational leadership as well and all in between so that's encouraging to me and uh, I was able actually well I'll speak I do want to give a plug also for the Louisiana Delta where I'm at the um, our cases have been exploding, like doubling, tripling just in a night or two um, in a very disturbing fashion. I won't get into all the details there, but it's been right as the governor has been lifting and relaxing orders in Louisiana. And our governor's done a pretty good job, but as he relaxed orders on May the 15th, our numbers began to increase tremendously here in these rural areas along the uh, Mississippi River. And I've been in touch with many congregations up and through this area, and they've all have continued to take it very seriously that just because this was said, um, they, they are continuing to meet in the ways, you know, through conference calls, uh, through zoom, mm-hmm. through other digital means. Um, and no one's, no one's rushing back around here. I say no one, but you know, most people are not rushing back. And so I just find comfort in those sort of small scale, um, 
everyday examples of people who are, you know, continuing to do the right thing and showing some sense and um, showing that faith and reason can be wed together. And both are gifts given to us by God. Uh, that, have, that was a conversation I was on earlier this morning uh, with a group of um, African-American leadership from the Delta area. And so it's just good to see, you know, when good sense prevails and uh, to know that um, even in the midst of uh, troubling times that we're still in pretty good hands um, with our, with a lot of our religious leadership. So shout out to you, Jamie, and to others who are doing what they can and doing so in a responsible way. Well, if we can, if I can piggyback off that, because I want to take it back to the president just for another minute, and I don't really want to beat a dead horse too much, but right. So like you said, in, in Alabama, especially in the rural parts of Alabama, we are having an explosion of cases, right? So we, in the last week in Alabama, we've had, when the previous high was 300 and something cases in a day, in the last week, we've had two days in which we've doubled that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and and so it to me it is troubling that the that the president chose now of all times when you're right like he's right the 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 case numbers are going down in New York right the caseloads are going down in New Jersey right those places that a month ago were flaming hotspots are on the decline and that is worthy of celebrating and worthy of being of feeling some degree of hope around at the same time in a lot of these places that are traditionally red state sort of areas the case numbers are exploding right now hmm. and and it irritates me to no end that knowing that because this is a guy that's got access to all the information in the world, quite literally, right? And for him to having access to that and still speaking about how it's it's time to get back to normal, it's time to for churches to get back in session, when you know that there, if there are churches that are going to be moved by it, it's going to be those churches that are out in the hollers where there is a direct correlation between one's faith and their presence in a building, in a time, in a space. Mm -hmm. So I am, I'm upset that those two sorts of realities have been collapsed into one and given, given the seal of approval, not just by the president because he's the president, but by, I mean, by extension, the nation, right? And and so I am, I am irritated by that. I'm upset by that. And I don't think that we should just, as much as I spent five minutes saying, you know, the president talks and people don't listen. <laughs> I think that we ought not give him a free pass because that's the case. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Just because nobody's listening to you doesn't give you carte blanche to, to spew out nonsense. And, yeah. and, and at that moment, speaking about, returning church, making churches essential businesses like gas stations and liquor stores. I'm sorry, you don't get a pass on saying that just because nobody's going to listen to you. Yeah. So I, I am, 
I am irritated and really I could rant about this for an hour, but nobody would like to listen to that. I promise. This is the the biggest issue with me moving forward. It's just this commodification and commercialization of religion as just another voting block, just another business, just another sort of means to an end. And that is, I cannot possibly be, and I know I'm not, the only clergy in America who is deeply troubled by that. But this hasn't caused an uproar amongst folks who you and I know, if anybody else in the world had said something like that, would be up in arms. That it has not created that sort of a commotion, I think, says something incredibly troubling about the state of Christianity today. That there is, like I said, not an insignificant number of believers who will let the president say complete and utter nonsense like that and not push back at all. That is incredibly troubling to me today. Yeah, and I don't, I'm not prepared to speak at length about this from a philosophical point of view, but there does seem to be something happening here where like, like religion and nationalism are collapsing in upon one another or faith and patriotism are collapsing in on one another. By patriotism, I mean this sort of jingoistic thing that happens sometimes on the far right. Um, that there's like what we're looking at is a nationalistic religion or a religion of nationalism or something along those lines, right? Like there's some exploratory work to be, I'm sure other people are already doing it, uh, religion scholars and philosophers, but there's, there's, in other words, like it, it just doesn't seem that for some folk, the political party and the Christian faith can be separated out. They have so collapsed in upon one another. And that's, that, that there has to be something there that's happening here that we can look at in the future. I'm going to make a concluding note here so we can move on and get into our second segment, but I will say, so I'm in rural uh, Northeastern Louisiana and the County or parish it, that I live in has only one city. Um, there's just one city that has three or 4,000 people in it. Um, there's a couple of crossroads communities, but no you know municipal body governing those places. Uh, so one city in the whole County Uh, The whole county has maybe 7,000 people. So while the numbers I'm about to give sound low compared to larger cities or metro areas, they're significant proportionally. We had, we hovered around 10 cases here in East Carroll for up, up until maybe three weeks ago. We were under 10 cases. Then we jumped up pretty quickly in the matter of days to 20, 25. About a week later, we were over 40. By last week, we jumped up into the low 50s. By the end of the week, we were in the low 60s. And over the weekend, we doubled, to almost doubled to over 100. So that's how rapidly it is expanding. To put some numbers for a rural place like you were describing with Alabama, our numbers are jumping up just tremendously. And and those numbers started to go up right as the, the orders were being relaxed from the governor. And I'm sure that the governor, who's a Democrat, John Bill Edwards, um, who did respond appropriately and early um, to things as this New Orleans was becoming a hot spot back in, gosh, early March, mid-March or so. Um, I think did a fairly good job at responding uh, at that point. But so much even of state policy and federal policy is looking at what happens in larger urban and metro areas. So as New Orleans and Baton Rouge got a handle on things, Shreveport and other cities, uh, it didn't 
much factor in that everyone was saying that the disease was going to spread and spread more rapidly in rural areas as, you know, as this was later in the process. And we're bearing the brunt of that now and trying to figure out what to do. Um, and it's, uh, it's a tough place to be. And so was on a conference call this morning with church leadership here in the parish. And uh, again, we'll end on a happy note, but just glad to see that the folks who were present on that um, were still, you know, holding or still holding firm and we're not rushing back into congregations and are still doing what's best for folks, especially in light of the numbers and the realities that we're facing and uh, many other places across the country are continuing to face as numbers keep going up. So keep holding the faith and uh, keep, keep being responsible and do what we can. Jamie, it's time we move into our second segment for today. It's been several weeks since we've turned our attention to the upcoming presidential election in November. And just last week, Democratic nominee and former Vice President Joe Biden inserted himself back into the news on a non-COVID-related note. While giving an interview on a morning talk show called The Breakfast Club, host Charlemagne the God asked Biden why he should vote for Biden over Trump. Biden's response was essentially an open-mouth insert-foot moment. I'll quote the exchange at length. Joe Biden said, quote, you got more questions, but I'll tell you what, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. Charlemagne the God responded, it don't have nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with the fact that I want something for my community I would love to see. Joe Biden jumps back in and says, take a look at my record, man. I extended the voting rights 25 years. I have a record that is second to none. The NAACP has endorsed me every time I've run. I mean, come on, take a look at the record, end quote. Biden, of course, was criticized on both the left and the right. Fox News in particular had fun with this one. And Biden later issued an apology for his statement. Jamie, we both grew up in the South and we both heard and witnessed a whole lot of problematic things that white folks say regarding race. But this one, well, this one I'm still trying to wrap my head around. What's your first take on this and uh, what may or may not have been going through Biden's mind to make such a comment or, or how does such a comment come about given Biden's reality? Yeah. You know, I had, uh, I sort of landed on, on, on both sides of this actually, because my initial thought was, well, <laughs> he ain't wrong, <laughs> but at the same time, like he he presumed for a moment uh, a couple things. One that the black experience is a monolithic one, right, and that you can't have black conservatives or you can't have black Trump supporters, uh, uh, of which there are both, to be sure. Uh, but my other thought, just sort of initially, and we can kind of unpack this, is is Biden has Biden has been in the public eye for basically his entire adult life, and he has developed decades long relationships with the Al Sharptons and the Jesse Jacksons of the world, and and has been he's right has been endorsed by the NAACP every time he's run for whatever office, and so. But that is a different generation of of African Americans than is the Charlemagne, the gods of the world. Yeah. Right. So let's say he was sitting at the Rainbow Push Coalition meeting or the National Action Network with uh with Al Sharpton or on Al Sharpton's show, and and, and Sharpton had asked him a question like that, and he had responded in that same way. They would have both laughed about it, and they'd have gone to commercial. 
Like, <laughs> and so because there is that that decades long relationship between those two communities, uh, and between Biden and those sorts of uh, figureheads within the movement, uh, the ones who who uh, you know. I, I told somebody the other day, like, this is a generation that, that, that marched with, with Martin and, and really thought they could bring the beloved community to fruition, right? In which all God's children held hands and sang Kumbaya, and that was that. After King's assassinated and after the Black Power Movement and the Black Panther Movement and Black is Beautiful and, and H. Rap Brown and Stokely Carmichael, and after all that begins to ascend to sort of the... The, the top of the uh, civil rights movement, that is when those, that, that generation of, of, of African-American activists uh, arose too, right? So whether you're talking about Charlemagne the God or Killer Mike or uh, Cardi B, right? Those are all folks who, who largely grew up at a time when black power had overtaken the SCLC, right, and and had largely had largely moved away from the language of of unity and the I have a dream sort of moment, and, and into a very very different place. And I don't know that Biden, he certainly was not equipped to be in that place during the interview, and I don't know that he's equipped to be in that world sort of full stop, because it's really really hard to teach an old dog new tricks. Uh, and, and so, and, and he, so he can sort of say, you know, I misspoke or I spoke too glibly or whatever. And that's true. Right. At the end of the day, it's hard for me to imagine 93% of African-Americans or so voting for somebody other than Joe Biden. Right. And yeah. so this, I think this, like I said, this is largely going to be a blip a couple of weeks out, but I think it does point to a larger sort of disconnect between between that older generation of the Democratic Party and the new generation of the Democratic Party and these, the, like I said, these activists that have come along sort of post-Martin King. Uh, so I, and there's a lot there, and we can sort of unpack that as you as you see fit. But that's kind of that was my initial thinking when uh, when I read about this story. Yeah, I think, I mean, I made a note when I saw this that um, whatever truth may or may not lie behind what Biden said or was trying to say, Biden still can't be the one saying that. Obama may have been able to get away with saying that, or as you said, Biden in a different context could say that. But I think the, I think the thing that particularly stuck was the saying, you ain't black, right? Obviously, that's the phrase, not um, I question your judgment or, the, or do, are, what, what are you, are you going to go throw your support behind uh, somebody who's come out and say that white supremacists are good and decent people multiple times or who failed to, or, or, or who took a long time to put distance between himself and David Duke of the Ku Klux Klan, you know, in 2015 when they endorsed Trump, like I, we could say like that, that's, that's what was meant behind it. But again, they're just, Biden can't be the one to say that and or to use that language. And it calls into question essentially what the comment does. And for younger generations, they will, I'm going to guess that they would know exactly what this meant. You can't call into question one's identity and the phraseology here of saying you're not black. If you don't vote for me, 
saying that your entire identity hinges upon whether you support me or not. That's the extremely problematic part of, of this. Um, Biden has a career of saying things that just don't come together well, um, that I don't want to chalk up to any sort of maliciousness or whatever. It shows a lack of awareness and a lack of being in tune with, um, I think, as I would summarize from what you were saying a moment ago, that, that there has been profound shifts in terms of racial consciousness and identity and in what is hoped for and what is expected um, in terms of older generations of leadership and younger generations of leadership and just what will be accepted and tolerated and what will not um, from, <laughs> to speak crassly, from old white men. Um, I think the fact that we live in a post-Obama world as well, that we, you know, that we have seen an African-American person be elected to president and for now Biden to essentially say, well, you know, I'm the only choice you have here. It's too fresh off the primary season. It's too fresh off of Cory Booker not winning the, the primary or Kamala Harris or other qualified candidates or Stacey Abrams, what happened to her in Georgia. There, there's too much that's happened to say, if you don't show support for me, Biden, who represents like old white Washington establishment, uh, if you don't get behind me, then I'm going to, I'm going to call your identity in, into question. And is that what Biden meant? I don't know. You know, probably not. I don't think that's exactly the nuance he was trying to get at, but that's what he said. That's how it came across. And, uh, and that's, that's just, uh, yeah, that's, a, it's, that's going to what uh, that will appear extraordinarily tone deaf, um, to many people. And I'm sure that's why it hit more than just him sticking his foot in his mouth. I think that's probably why, like, again, the right, ra the racial politics, even of, uh, of our generation and younger generations are not what they used to be and nor should they be. And that does, that doesn't play well to, in, in any sense, I think for anyone to say your, I, I think that's true for across identity categories to put to basically throw a purity test down and say you have to do x in other for and especially for that to come from a white guy an old white guy to say i'm laying this test down and uh you're obviously not this if you don't do this like that's that's just a troublesome thing to hear well and i think there's also this came out sort of the time that that sort of followed was it mike brown was that the guy's name and uh in uh, Missouri, that sort, of, sort of sparked the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. I believe that yes. was his name. Yeah, yeah it was Mike, uh, Michael Brown. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so in the sort of in the aftermath of that killing and the the protests that arose around it, there was a real fissure in the African American community between that old line generation of the, the ones that, that marched with, with, with Martin uh, and the new generation. And that's, I mean, that's sort of played out across the board in, in the protest movements, in sort of cultural markers, right? There's, a, I know that uh, Jay-Z has a, has, a, has a track on, not his last album, but the one before this, the, the essentially just, the, I guess Al Sharpton had said something about him and he kind of just dismisses Al Sharpton as being out of hand as being uh, sort of out of touch and from a different generation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think, so I think there is that generational divide in which older African-American activist types really have questioned the, 
the practices and the language in some of the uh, younger black activist folks. And, and I think that also kind of plays out in the same, in the same vein as what Biden said, right? Because again, if Biden had been sitting with a Jesse Jackson or a, uh, Al Sharpton, I don't think anything would have been made of that comment either in the moment or sort of later on. But because it was, because it was in the midst of this, this younger African-American activist and, and rapper, because it was in the midst of, of his show and at a time when he's looking for a reason to vote and Biden's presumption was, well, of course you're going to vote for me because you're not going to vote for the other guy. I, I think that, that that lifts up that, uh, that dichotomy between that old line African-American activist and the new line and, I think all that sort of collapsed onto the same sort of point. Uh, and, I, you know, Republicans will be able to make hay out of it for a week or two, but it's not going to move the needle in either direction, I don't think. Um, but it also, and I, I think it also minimizes a lot of what's going on within the African-American community. I know that we want to sort of get to that uh, before we close out this segment. Right. This is not a time to to joke around about race relations in this country. Yeah. Right. There are, right. There are African Americans who are dying at an alarming clip, uh, and and largely at the hands of of white folk. And and so it's not the time to to sort of make light of race relations, because you know all white folks are falling short of this right now. It's not. It's not a Republican thing. It's not a Democrat thing. It's just a thing. And and I think that's worth lifting up as well. I think you're right, Jamie. I mean, just to frame this out for future reference, um, if anyone's ever listening to this years to come, um, and hopefully they're doing something better with their time than that. But this is all happening at the same time that the, that, that the news of Ahmaud Arbery's killing has really hit a national stage and the same time that Breonna Taylor death um, has occurred and is hitting national headlines as well. So that's all happening around this. And I'll, I'll back up from that a moment and say the other thing that has been what I have learned and what I've seen from communities of color in general for the last seven or eight years through social media, uh, conversations, academic work, et cetera, political work, organizing work, a common theme from communities of color has been do not make us do the work of educating you about your racism to white people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this just seems like this, this, the comment just seems to fly in the face of that, of like, here is this, we know if you know Biden at all, you know, his character, you know, how does he presents, you know, how he tends to misspeak all of these things. This is not the climate to, and Biden's issued an apology, but like no longer, for at least for a lot of uh, a lot of folks that I see raising this theme, it's not it's not enough for a person just to, a white person just to kind of chuckle and smile their way through it and say, oh well, you know what I meant, like you know I didn't mean that I meant I, I don't take my blah blah blah. And not again, Biden issued an apology, just full stop at that point. But however, the climate has so shifted, and the responsibility as it has always should have been. People of color have been naming this fact. White people do your homework. White people do your work. White people don't put the burden on us to come in and help you make sense of what's what. All right. You know, like you should be capable of doing this. 
And there is, um, this episode just touches on that. I think you're right about the context again, that it, it is with the younger activist with Charlemagne the God. And so that just, that, that sets the stage for this, but I'm reminded of that theme, a theme which I agree with hundred percent and think is exactly right. And Biden can't just flash that million dollar smile and, uh, and just say, well, I'm the best choice you got, you know, so just ignore the, ignore the things that I say and just follow along. Like that's, that's not just going to be enough. Um, in a a philosophical sense does it change the needle probably not but in a philosophical sense no and it's gonna it's it's played out it's tired it's played out like he can't he just can't keep getting away with that stuff um consider that the reason that donald trump won in the first place four years ago was because a lot of african americans who voted for obama in eight and twelve sat at home for hillary clinton Right. This is not a voting block that you want to even shave a half a percent off of. Right. And we and so I, I take Jamie and you bringing that up, like exactly what Charlemagne the God meant of like, this is not about Trump. Tell me why I should get out and go vote for you. So we can have two conversations here. We can have one of like, it's the duty of every good citizen to go and vote. It's, there's also the racial conversation of when people have been so thoroughly marginalized uh, for decades and decades and decades and centuries, really, um, Joe Biden, you as a white man, you do need to make the case, not just for African-Americans, but for all people. What really is the motivation here to get out and support you? When there's so much, what I've experienced in the Delta, at least, when there's still a lot of skepticism around the electoral process, when there's um, a lack of belief that your voice matters or that your vote matters, I encounter that a lot. And I encounter that a lot with younger generations, too, white and black, but I'm in a predominantly, uh, predominantly black area here in the Delta but I do experience that a lot. There's a distrust of the government. There's a distrust that their vote matters. Why should I be engaged? And if you're a white liberal listening to this, I know that may just not make rational sense to you, but that is that is the sense. That's the feeling. I'm one vote out of 350 million people in our country. What difference does it make? And the government is so set up as to not care about the value of black lives anyway. What does it matter? So Charlemagne the God's question was exactly on point. And you're exactly right, Jamie, in saying, not Biden is not in a position, nor was Hillary Clinton, to just presume that uh, people would see them to be the savior figures that they might have imagined themselves to be, or that it just would naturally make sense that black people and other people of color would gravitate toward them and go support them. But Biden's got some work to do on that end, too. We know, especially on the West Coast, that a lot of Latinx individuals and Muslim individuals from various backgrounds were big burning supporters. So uh, just the the People of color in the country are obviously not a monolith, as you've said. The African-American community is not a monolith. Uh, and Biden can't afford to not do a really, not to rest on his laurels, whatever that might, they might be, um, or he may have, whatever he might think they are. Uh, he can't do that and presume that the, the individuals are actually going to show up and vote in November and get him into office. That's, that's, a, that's a dangerous game to play. Yeah, exactly. Jamie, before we close this segment, uh, we do have to turn toward breaking news coming out of Minneapolis concerning a black man. His name has not been released yet at the time of this recording, so we don't know his name and we're not able to say it. But a black man was detained by police and died hours later in custody, we believe, in a hospital. He was taking off, taken off in, a, in an ambulance. Uh, listeners, as I begin to describe what happened in the video, uh, please feel free to skip forward in the show. About five to seven minutes of listening to this might be distressing. I'll describe just what we've seen, what we know, which is not a lot at this point, but what we do know is disturbing. 
Uh, but I'm going to describe that, and then we'll have a few minutes of conversation before we close out our show. So reports at this point are a little muddled in terms of what it, what started the whole thing. It seems the police were responding to some type of call regarding a forgery, is what was said. Um, apparently, the police were called out, and a gentleman was out somewhere in the city um, in Minneapolis. And the gentleman, at some point, was sitting on top of a car, his car. And then later, when the police got there, he was sitting inside of his car. Um, police claimed that he was intoxicated and that he resisted arrest. We have no idea. Um, there were body cams. The body cams supposedly were on, but I've not seen any footage and I've not heard reporting about what was on those body cams. But this, they said that he resisted arrest and the video that's making its way around news outlets right now was taken from a, a citizen who was standing by as this happened. And the video footage that we see through that citizen began after police had already detained this gentleman, had handcuffed him, he was laying face down on the pavement next to a sidewalk, and most of his body was behind a police car, so we can't see the majority of it. But that's what we're reporting on starts there in terms of what we've been able to see in this uh, citizen's uh, video, probably most likely from his cell phone. Um, so police claimed that he was intoxicated and he resisted arrest, uh, causing them to forcefully hold the man down. What's bizarre and horrible to watch is that for several minutes after the man is detained, and this you can see on the, the citizen's video, um, for several minutes after the man is detained and cuffed and lying prostrate on the ground, not resisting, barely moving, he's, he's able to talk, but he's not actively struggling whatsoever, a white police officer continues to hold the man down with his knee pressing into the back of the man's neck for minutes on end. Um, and the white man is, the white police officer is just, just sitting there. Um, he's, that's what he's doing. So onlookers have begun filming at this point, and you can clearly hear and see the man saying that he can't breathe, that he's uncomfortable, that his stomach hurts, um, that he's through resisting even. Like he says that at some point, he goes, I'm through, I'm through. Uh, and eventually, uh, after several minutes of this, the man passes out and is unresponsive. He's clearly seems to be unconscious while he's laying there. All the while, the citizens who are filming the incident are pleading with the officers on the scene to at least have the one officer take uh, his neck off the man's neck. And then they plead with officers to check the man's pulse after it's clear that he passed out. It appears that the other, so the one, the police officer holding the man down was a white guy and the police officer, there was another one who was interfacing with these two or three citizens on the sidewalk, seemed to be Asian American background. Uh, They they both say at some point of like, this is what happens when you do drugs, like very flippantly saying to them something of that nature. Jamie, it's just, it, it, well, I will say too, even after the gentleman passes out, they can, the white officer continues to sit atop of this man on the pavement, on the side of the street with his knee, you know, on the, on the crook of his neck, holding him down after he's passed out. The citizens are asking them to at least take his pulse or to do something. Like, obviously, the man is unconscious now. He wasn't unconscious now. He is. Do something. Like, see what's what's wrong. And both police officers just like, stoically just refuse. They just stay there uh, until the ambulance comes. But that was three or four or five minutes later on the video footage. Um, they just stay there not giving any attention to the guy at all. Um this is obviously coming on the heels of what we know about Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, the arrest of her boyfriend, who thankfully those charges have been dropped. Uh, Kenny Taylor, I believe was his name. Uh, what, 
how does this hit you, Jamie? It's obviously disturbing, but what are you thinking? What are your first thoughts on this? And, and we'll get into this more in the future, but uh, once we know more, but what, what's your first take? Right. So I guess my initial take is here we go again. Yeah. Right. And you're right. We know very few of the details sort of surrounding this entire episode. And so you don't want to go down the road too far. What we do know is that the officer sat there for many, many minutes having the guy pinned down until he passes out. And then many minutes after that. Mm-hmm. And so sort of whatever, whatever happened prior to that, to, to, to end up in this situation to me is almost irrelevant. Yeah. Right. I don't, yeah. I, 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 I'm not a police officer and I don't know what that's like, uh, but I do know that at some point you have to know that the guy that you are subduing has passed out and, and there's going, there has to be some inherent risk in continuing the behavior that you are, that you are in which you are engaging that led to his passing out. Right. Just as a human response, you have to know that. And so there is to me, at least from the, from the video, an, uh, just a, a, a lack of value of, of life at that moment. Um, right. And again, there, there is, we don't know a whole lot of the details beyond what we've seen on the video. And I'm sure I'm positive that, that more will come out in the coming days and weeks but I just I, I can't help but but sort of jump back to uh, Freddie Gray mm-hmm. um, in, in Baltimore or the uh, uh, the guy um, about whom was it Fruitvale Station the movie yeah. was made yeah yeah um, with Michael B Jordan yeah yeah him um, right I, I can't help but think this is just sort of another example of of an interaction between an African American and uh, a, a, a white cop, or cop in general, uh, that ends up with the African American being dead. And I think that is, regardless of what other circumstances there are that surround it, that is a tragedy that need not be papered over. And I'm sure it won't be. I'm sure that, that depending on sort of the reaction of, uh, of the powers that be in Minneapolis, it will not be papered over within that community. Uh, and I just, I, I grieve for where we are as a nation that this can become, I mean, it's almost commonplace at this point, right? The same way I it felt is. a couple of years ago when it was clear that sort of school shootings and mass shootings had just become commonplace. I kind of feel that way about the killing of, of, of unarmed African-Americans. Um, and, and the degree to which it is just sort of part of the national dance that we do. Yeah, for sure. And this is not, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul's first, um, major national story that's come out about this type of thing happening. Of course, Philando Castile, uh, there are other stories that have happened during the Black Lives Matter movement and into today. So this is not new for the city of Minneapolis. So, uh, don't know what the response is going to be there. Um, I'm sure that people are going to organize. It makes no sense, Jamie. I, you know, I, I'm not, a, I'm obviously not a police officer. I don't know. I'm sure I'll just, I'll back up and say this. I'm sure that it has to happen 
all the time that people are intoxicated and they hassle a cop and they are restrained and detained in some sense. And it does not result in this. And the met again, I'm talking more about the methodology here. Like I don't, and even to the citizens on the side of the street, it defied all explanation of why after the person was docile, not struggling, not fighting, not running their mouth, not talking, not doing anything, all of which none of that should, you know, result in a person's death. The person was not struggling whatsoever. What is the method of handling a person at that point that requires them to continue to stay in that position? Maybe I watch too much TV or too much Hollywood or something, but why not get the guy up and help and and put him in the back of the police car? (laughs) I mean, like it just, it, 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 these are still obviously much larger. There's still much larger questions that we're getting into here that we're not going to get into about the, the, the relationship between communities of color, black and brown communities and police officers and overuse of, of force and whatnot. That's, that is all a conversation that we've had before and still merits having around this. But I just, just from watching, there's something surreal about watching the video and seeing the, the, the officer, could just continue to hold this position for several minutes after the, the gentleman's not struggling. And then several minutes after he passes out and slips to unconsciousness, it justifies all logic to me. And, and like you said, really speaks to just a, a basic devaluing a light of life and that whatever sense of the, the power vested into these two officers, because both, both were equally recalcitrant that the citizens were trying to talk sense to the um, again, what, he appears Asian American on the video to the Asian American police officer who's standing there sort of show a force to keep the citizens from doing anything. Not that they were threatening to, uh, they were trying to talk sense. They were saying like, ask your partner to at least check his pulse. Like they were being very reasonable here. Like, would you please turn to your partner? Like get at least he's passed out. He's clearly unconscious. Could you please just get him to take his, his knee off the back of the guy's neck and there's just, I, I don't know what type of training or lack of training it happens, but there's just, there's zero sense of concern. Um, zero that you can see clearly, you can see both officers' faces. There's just no concern whatsoever. And it would appear to me that they would both imagine or think that they are playing by the book here or doing what's required. It's, it's frustrating. It's disheartening. Um, I hope that there are some strong reactions in Minneapolis because whatever this is, and again, we're not experts in this, but you know what looks, you know the devaluation of human life when you see it, and this seems to be it, and it's, uh, we'll see what happens uh, coming forward in the future, but it's, it's disturbing. Um, it just doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be that way. Jamie, it's now time for our Front Porch Musings, or a time when you and I share something that has touched our hearts so that we have found interesting that may not be national headline news. So let's imagine that we have just wrapped up our Memorial Day weekends. You're feeling good. You're on your front porch enjoying these last few days before the sweltering humidity hits the south. Uh, Jamie, what are you musing about this week? So this story came up on my feed uh, probably a week and a half ago now at this point. Um, you know, I, I have, as you know, three, three sons, um, 
And my oldest son is is twelve. He'll be thirteen in in June, uh, and and he is of that age where he and and increasingly I play video games a lot at night. Uh, and so one of the games that we've been playing a lot recently is a game called Animal Crossing, and it's uh you know you it's kind of hard to describe. You sort of create your own world, and you have islands, and folks can visit other people's islands. And and if you're not a video gamer, none of that means anything to you. The but the the, the thing that jumped out at me was uh, there was a story like I said about a week and a half ago during the uh, during the quarantine in which the congressional woman uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez uh, started playing this game uh, <laughs> and <laughs> she uh, so she she tweeted about it like incessantly <laughs> for a while. <laughs> During because she was stuck at home and she was playing video, whatever. But the thing that made me the happiest about it was she, uh, you know, she's got I don't I don't know how many millions of Twitter followers, but a lot. And she, so she would tweet out once or twice a day that she was going to open up her direct messages for anybody to send her a message, and and she asked for folks to send her their island codes. Uh, so each island has a has a has a code that you can type in and go visit somebody else's island. Uh, so anyway, so she would for I think it was I want to say it's four minutes a a day would open up her DMs because I wouldn't do it anymore <laughs> if I were her. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. For, for for folks to send them send her their uh, their island codes and she would go and visit people, you know, just for a few minutes and 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 hang out with them digitally and virtually and have conversations with them and you know in in a in a world where we often think about our our representatives as as being very out of touch or at least they can be mm-hmm. um, that, that story made me so incredibly joyful to think that there was and you know I you, you know I talk about this I'm not a huge AOC fan uh but I do respect uh a representative who's willing to actually talk to other people as if they're people. Uh, so I, that, that story, like I said, came to me a week and a half, two weeks ago. And it, it continues to make me happy every time I play the game animal crossing with, with my son uh, to, to think that, that there was a, there is a representative out there who really tries to be with her people. Um, so yeah. I'll offer that up because it was like, it was just a great story and uh, it made me and, and my son incredibly happy. I love it. I love it. Uh, I'm going to share this week. Um, I've over the years, Jamie, I'm sure you as well. I, I, I've encountered a lot of people in the United States who, when they think church and religion, they only think, conservative evangelical anti-lgbtq anti-women all these that that's what they know of church right and that 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 had happened recently in my life where i encountered some some good friends like that and uh in light of that i want to share and in light of some of the the first segment we had and sort of the politicization of church from president trump and some on the far right etc i'm happy to report um Tonight, at the day of this recording at least, um, there's a large gathering of clergy and uh, from across religious lines, there are Jewish and Muslim representatives as well as people from the Christian faith, Unitarian Universalists and others who are gathering via Zoom with the governor of Louisiana 
and we're expecting around a thousand people or more to be on the call to say collectively as one body across Louisiana from faith communities, at least that as Louisiana is facing a huge budget deficit in light of all the lost money from tourism during COVID and the hit to the oil industry, which is a major, those are the two major uh, uh, industries for Louisiana's economy. There's a big meeting tonight um, organized through a group called Together Louisiana that we, there are chapter organizations all across the state and once here in the Delta that I work with. And it is just, it's, it's, I need to say this for myself, if nothing, no one else, but it's to, it's refreshing to see people of faith um, from really kind of all different places, but theological positions, I would say, um, who are coming together to do something good out of concern for the state and for citizens. What we what we don't want to see, of course, is you know, education, healthcare, things like that, the, the normal things that get cut in terms of budget deficits. Uh, and that the, the power wielded by this group collectively is enough to get the governor of the state involved, um, to at least to come and listen and to, to share his thoughts as well. Um, it's just, it's just good. And I think in a, in a world in which there are still, that's why we do this podcast, right? And why we do the website is that there are progressive people of faith who all look very differently from each other and come from various backgrounds. And there's a lot of good work that gets done throughout the South and the rest of the country that just never hits the radars of a lot of people. Um, like I, I opened this segment with, um, or my, my musing with a moment ago, um, and that's not to throw shade at anybody. It's just people don't know what they don't know. And so I offer that up today as just another example of what we try to do here on the show and what we try to do with our website is just to, to share that spotlight with, with groups and individuals uh, across the South and elsewhere who are doing good work. That's not hyper-partisan. It's just uh, what, doing what we, we know is good for the marginalized and what makes for healthy communities and for a healthy body politic and to know that that work's being done it'll never make national news it won't make any headlines uh, outside of the state but and and no one you know there's no harvard economist coming down to do this for us you know this is something that's very grassroots and organized and i'm grateful for the the many 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 leaders across the state um clergy folk from various backgrounds who are making this happen and who, who brought it together. And I'll be happy just to witness it tonight and to be a, just to, to listen in and be a part of it. But um, I'll just, I'll stop with that, that there, that good work's being done and we're happy to elevate that here on, on PST. And, uh, and it's a good encouraging word. Uh, well said, Mark. I really appreciate that today. All right, good, sir. That's going to wrap us up for today. Thank you for your time, Jamie. Mark, have a good one now. All righty. And if you're listening along, thank you also for joining us. Please hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening and leave a five-star ranking if you will. Remember that you can find all of our written work on Facebook, Twitter, and at ProgressiveSouthernTheologians.com. Friends, y'all take care. Jamie, you take care. And we'll be back with you next week. <laughs>